Happy New Year, almost. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. My name is Tim, and it's my privilege to open God's Word with you and in some ways have a, a second crack at uh, the wonderful uh, exposition we heard before from Saw uh, for the kids. So thanks for that, Saw. Hey, every uh, year in December, I read a number of articles about the best books of the year gone by. Now, I'm a pastor, right? So I'm not reading Oprah's top 10. Uh, I'm reading books, <laughs> lists like... Um, Gospel Coalition Top 23 Book Awards or, you know, um, Christianity Today Top Book Awards for the previous year. Now, truth be told, the reason that I'm reading these books usually is because I'm trying to find something to give to the staff as a Christmas present, uh, but I'm also reading it because I'm trying to keep an eye out for books that I want to read. After all, there are so many books in existence and, frankly, too many books to waste time on bad ones. Because let's face it, time is too precious to waste at reading bad books. Uh, One projection I read said that next year there will be about a million books self-published and three million books, sorry, other way around, one million books professionally published, three million books self-published. That's four million new books next year. I suspect some of them will be good, most of them won't. And so again, time is too precious to waste it on bad books. And so it's always, I think, worth listening to the recommendations of others. By the way, I officially start holidays tomorrow. So if you've got a good book recommendation for me, feel free to give it to me. I reckon there's few things that are better than sitting on a beach reading a good book in the sun. But here's the thing. For all the books that we might aspire to read next year, 2024... Uh, Psalm 19 suggests that there is really only two books, or actually even one book maybe, that we ought to really keep close to our hearts. Why do I say that? Well, Psalm 19 is a psalm written by King David about what are sometimes called God's two books, that is the skies and the scriptures. And in some ways, as I was uh, reflecting on this passage, I I was tempted to turn it into a bit of an exploration of what theologians sometimes call general revelation and special revelation, the the way that God speaks to us generally through the skies and specially or sometimes specifically through the scriptures. I think there would be warrant in that, but if we were to go down that angle, I in some ways do feel like we would maybe miss the heart behind the passage. I say that because Psalm 19 is not a theological lecture. It's a poem. It's the fruit of a heart that has spent hours and hours, weeks and weeks, months and months, years and years, meditating on the wonder of God's two books. And then it's overflowed in a poem, which then the author, David, has offered back to God almost as an act of worship. So let me just draw your attention to the way the psalm finishes. David writes, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Again, it's a poem. It's it's almost a love poem offered to God as an act of worship. And so to finish the year off, I thought maybe we could just spend a few moments reflecting on this poem and seeing what it has to teach us about God's two books, the skies and the scriptures. First of all, the skies. If you have a Bible, worth having it open in front of you. Uh, But verses 1 to 6, which is really kind of the first half of the psalm, really just spend some time meditating on the way that God speaks to us through creation. You know, the things that you can see, that you can touch. And so uh, verse 1 begins like this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. 
think different ages need to be reminded of this in different ways. You know, previous generations, or really the ancients, used to look at the celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and thought they were gods, and so they worshipped them. The default assumption for many these days, particularly in the West, is to... Oops. Default assumption for many in the West these days is to uh, explain the existence and operation of the celestial bodies in just naturalistic ways. But David says, no, 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 no. Uh, the sun, the moon and stars, they're neither gods nor are they accidents. Instead, these things are the, the creation of the one true God. And you can see his fingerprints all over them. He goes on in verse 2. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. I love the imagery of that verse. Um, before our kids go to bed each night, either my wife or I will read them the Bible. Uh, it's typically only one of us, the other is doing some chores. And so we always know where the other one is up to in the Bible because we leave the bookmark in it. And so, you know, I'll do it, I'll read it and put the bookmark in and my wife will pick up where I've left off the next day. You get the impression that a similar thing is going on here with the day and the night. Right? Each day picks up where the previous day left off. Each night, picking, handing off to the night that will follow. Day and night, telling their own similar but different stories of the glory and the majesty of their creator. Verse 3 and 4. It says, They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. And yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Right, the skies in some ways are like God's traveling preachers. You know, writers who set out to declare the glories of God in distant lands like the old Methodist preachers used to on horseback. And yet, despite the voice going out, you don't actually hear anything. They don't have speech. Instead, it's almost like they are forced to use sign language, to sign the glories of God. Which actually, just as an aside, has some interesting implications because what it means is that we need someone to teach us creation sign language. If you don't understand creation sign language, you're tempted to worship creation itself. What we need is someone to teach us the language of creation so that we can interpret it properly and respond accordingly. But we'll get to that later on. For now, we'll keep going. Verse 4. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It's like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and it makes its circuit to the other. Right, he finishes on the skies, his meditation on the skies by talking specifically about the sun. And you have to remember, for most ancient people, the sun was not just the thing that gives you light, it was the chief among the gods. And yet David reminds us, again, 3,000 years ago, no, 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 the sun's not a god. So it's like a little camper. You know, God pitches a tent for it each night and then sort of sends it on its way at the beginning of each day. Or he says, it, it's like a bridegroom whose beaming smile radiates warmth to all who see it. Or it's like a professional athlete rejoicing at the thought of running laps on its arranged circuit day after day. Again, David says, the sun's not a god. The sun is the creation of the one true God. And therefore, together with the other bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, all of these are just a dim reflection 
of the glory of God. But what are they saying? Again, without speech, what are they signing to us? Well, again, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. In other words, they're telling us that God is glorious and that he created them. That's what they're telling us. Problem is, that's not a story that many of us really like to hear, at least not according to the scriptures. Because according to the Bible, what humanity tend to do with this story, what we tend to do with this message that God is glorious and he created the world, is suppress it. And so according to Romans 1, this is what we read. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Listen to this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, so his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Paul says that God has made certain things about himself clear in creation. We ought to know simply by looking at the world that there is a powerful divine creator and that he is worthy of our worship by simple fact that he created the world. That, we could say, is the content of God's first book. The problem is, again, most people don't like the implications of that truth. And so we suppress it. And therefore, the tragic Reality is that God's traveling preachers actually end up in reality being more like prophets of doom rather than preachers of grace. Why? Well, in the courtroom of God, this first book functions more like a damning piece of evidence against us because we suppress what it says rather than the loving story of our Heavenly Father. And yet, the good news is there's a second book. There is a second book. In his grace, God has given us a second book. This one is the scriptures. And it's through the scriptures that we come to know God, not just as divine, powerful creator, but also our heavenly father, our rock, our redeemer. It's also, interestingly, through this book that we finally get to learn the language of the skies that you get to learn the sign language of creation and can start to interpret it properly. So let's move on. We've done the skies. Let's move on to the scriptures. Again, if you have a Bible open, uh, you'll notice verse 1 to 6, it's kind of its own section. 7 to 9 then become almost an extended meditation on the scriptures. And he says the same thing effectively the six different times in slightly different ways. And so he gives us six nouns, six adjectives, six verbs, all saying the same basic thing. It's almost like he's, he's holding the diamond of the scriptures up to the light and seeing the different angles reflected out, refracted out. Before we look at the specifics of what he says, though, just one, one comment about these two different halves. Because in the first half, verses 1 to 6... David uses the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, it's once. He just uses it once. If you've got an NIV, it'll come up twice, but it's only there in the original once. Now, that word God, it's just generic. It's God, it's divine. 
the same word would be used for the so-called gods of other nations. It's just God. Now, that wouldn't necessarily be all that significant if it weren't then contrasted with verses 7 to 9, where a different word is used. This time it's not Elohim, God, it's Yahweh, Lord, which is God's covenant name. And it's also not just used once, not even used twice, it's used six times. Each time we're getting this same idea repeated and repeated and repeated. Now, why is that significant? Well, if you can forgive the nature of the illustration, the difference between God and Yahweh Elohim and Yahweh is a little like the difference between the word king and the name Charles. One tells you what he is, the other tells you who he is. And so God's first book, The Skies, tells us what he is. He's king. He's powerful. He's the creator. But his second book, The Scriptures, tell us who he is. He's a rock. He's our redeemer. He's our covenant lord, Yahweh. And he sent his son, Jesus. So let's just hold up this diamond for a moment again. We'll just kind of race through verses 7 to 9. I won't bring it up on the screen. But just notice the nouns first. What does he say? The law of the Lord is perfect. The statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, decrees of the Lord. Right? Each of these words teach us something specific about the practical purpose of God's law. What do they do? It's God's way of bringing his word to bear on our lives and evoking the right response from us, a response of reverence, of trust, and ultimately of obedience. Look at the adjectives now. They're perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, pure, firm. Right. Every, every one of those words are supposed to be a stark contrast to the half-truths, the insincerity, the compromise so often found in our words to one another. David is telling us, it doesn't matter about anyone else, you can bet your life on the Scriptures. Well, look at the verbs. They refresh the soul, make wise the simple, give joy to the heart. Give light to the eyes. They endure forever. Now, I don't know if David intended this, but there does seem, at least as I read it, there does seem to be almost a natural progression in each of the kind of stages he's describing here. See, my translation of that first one there is refreshes the soul. It gives the, almost the idea that when the soul is thirsty and it needs a good drink, you know, read the Bible and everything will be better. Now, in, in some ways, maybe there's a degree of truth to that, but it's not really what it's saying. It refreshes the soul. Um, older translations used to say things like converts the soul because the original word has this sense of reviving something that is dead. And so the idea seems to be that God's word actually gives life to his spiritually dead people. But he doesn't just give life. Having given us life through the scriptures, he goes on to make the simple wise, to make the sad joyful, and the blind able to see. Now that brings us back to creation. Because remember, even though being able to see, I think it's about more than seeing the glory of God in creation, but it's not less than that. And so again, it's only through the scriptures that we come to understand how to read creation properly. Uh, John Calvin was a reformer from the 15th century, uh, 1500s. 
He wrote this about the way that God uses Scripture to help us kind of understand creation and how to read it. He says, For with Scripture as our guide and teacher, not only does he, that is God, make plain those things that would otherwise escape our notice, he virtually forces us to behold them as if he had assisted our dull sight with eyeglasses. The sun and the moon can cry day and night of the glories of God, but unless God revives the soul, the cries fall on deaf ears. We, We don't understand how to read it. But for those who have been awakened, who have the spectacles of the scriptures put over their eyes, we can actually start to see, oh, wow. You know, we, the glory of God shines through the sweet song of the Southern Cross and the music of the Milky Way. It's why when you go, if you love nature, right, if you, you go climb a mountain, there's something just breathtaking about standing on top of a mountain. Now, if you view the world through what the scriptures teach you, you can actually use that as a beautiful moment of worship. Sing, wow, that God, my heavenly Father, the Father of the, Jesus Christ, has created all this. Same thing when you're sitting on a board waiting for a wave. It's a moment of worship. Too much, too much. David goes on, uh, gives us two more images in verse 10. He says, They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Right? Pirates and bees would have a field day with the word of God. So just before we move on, it might be worth asking yourself, to what extent did I make the most of the Scriptures in 2023? As you look back on your year, did you dig up the treasures? Did you taste the sweetness of God's Word? We're walking around with a veritable treasure chest in our back pockets. Most of us have it on our phones. And so if you, you look back and go, okay, probably maybe I didn't quite tap into it as much as I could have last year. As you look ahead to 2024, why not consider how you could dig deeply into God's Word? First year I ever read the Bible uh, in a year was 19, so I was 19 at the time. Absolutely life-changing. That might be something, again, as, as we look on the precipice for New Year, maybe that's a goal for you, a worthy goal to read through God's Word in a year. If you're like, how would I do that? There's plenty of places you can go online for Bible reading plans. Um, McShane's got a good one. Don Carson has a good one. Version Bible app has plenty. Just use one of them. But suppose we ask, well, why are the Scriptures so precious? Well, David tells us in verse 11 his answer. He says, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. In other words, there's two particular things that David treasures about God's word. First, they kind of warn us of the dangers of disobeying God. And so all through the Bible, the consequence of disobeying God is spiritual death, which is always symbolized by being shut out of his presence. And so with Adam and Eve back in Genesis, they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, With the people of Israel, they're driven from the promised land. And then you have uh, Jesus constantly warning that those who persist in sin and do not trust in him will ultimately be shut out of the kingdom of God. And so the scriptures warn us of this. But they also show us that there is great reward in obeying God. 
you know, not just that we don't experience the negatives, but actually the positives of living life to the full, of knowing life as it was supposed to be, which is life in relationship with God. So the scriptures are precious. Why? Because they speak of the reward that comes from obeying God, and they warn us of the dangers of failing to do so. But all of that comes with a bit of tension, doesn't it? Because as much as you might want to obey God, you know that you don't do it perfectly. And what's more, you may or may not be aware that actually there's a whole area of your life that you're maybe not even aware that you're sinning against God. Which is actually where David goes next in verse 12 and 13. He says, But who can discern their own errors? Forgive me my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. David draws a distinction here between willful and hidden sins, or what we might call conscious and unconscious sins. The ones you're aware of and the ones you're not aware of. Now, if the thought of unaware sins or unconscious sins seems a little bizarre, perhaps you're you're new to the faith, maybe new to the Bible. That's okay. That's actually awesome. Welcome. Let me just maybe paint a picture of what you might expect uh, reasonably the longer that you've been a Christian. So here's a bit of a graph. Uh, The x-axis, so the one along, uh, is extending out from the moment you become a Christian, and it's basically time. Above the line, the y-axis shows your knowledge of God's word, and below the line shows your knowledge of your own sin. Now, when you first become a Christian, you have a basic understanding of what God requires in his word, and therefore, you kind of see what God requires, and you go, all right, I have a basic concept of that, and so you're, you have a corresponding basic knowledge of your own sin. The thing is, the longer you've been a Christian, the more you understand what God requires in his word, as you understand it more and more and more, but it also brings about it a corresponding awareness of, oh gosh, actually all of these things God requires, and gosh, I'm actually falling even further far short than I thought I was. That, I think, is the sense of David's prayer in verse 12 and 13. He's aware of the sinful proclivity of his heart to commit willful sins. And so he begs God, God, would you protect me from the sins that used to rule me in the past? But he's also aware that for all that I do know, there's still a whole bunch that I don't know. And so, God, would you even forgive me for the stuff that I don't even know I'm doing? And so in verse 13, he tells us why. Well, then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. But at the end of the day, that's David's longing. The more he comes to know God's word, the more he longs to be blameless and innocent of transgression. But again, there is that tension because the more he knows God's word, the more he sees how far short he falls of God's word. So how do you resolve the tension? Well, the way that the scriptures, God's second book, does it for us is by pointing us to a third S, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because really, the message of the New Testament is that God sent his Son into the world to be perfectly obedient to the scriptures, to his word. He was obedient to every law, statute, precept, command, and decree. He heeded all the warnings of the scriptures. And yet he also suffered the disobedience, suffered the consequences of the disobedience of people like you and I. Why? 
or so that we might receive the ultimate reward. That, that's ultimately the message of the cross. See, again, when you're a Christian, I think the cross is glorious because you see that the cross bridges that gap. It says, this is what God expects. This is where I've fallen. But God, through the cross, deals with the gap and washes me clean and makes me innocent of transgression. So it's glorious. But the longer you've been a Christian, the more aware of your own sin you become. Actually, perhaps surprisingly, the more glorious the cross becomes. Because the more you understand the depth of your sin, the more you'll treasure Christ and all he did for you at the cross. Uh, there's a bit in C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian where Lucy and Aslan are having a conversation. You will have, many of you will have heard it from me before, but Aslan says to Lucy, sorry, Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. Uh, and then Aslan responds, that is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. The more you treasure the word of God, the more God's love for you will seem to grow. The more the cross will seem to grow. Why? Well, not because it is any bigger, but because it's got bigger in your sight. Because your appreciation of what God has done at the cross has grown the more you become aware of just how far short you've fallen. And so, Grace City, if you want to treasure Christ in 2024, treasure the scriptures. Because they will actually show you how far short you fall, but in so doing, show you just how much God loves you. Let me close. Now, the idea we are speaking about today is revelation. It's this idea that God hasn't left us in the dark about who he is. Instead, he's revealed himself to us through his two books, the skies and the scriptures. The thing is, we've seen there's also a problem. Because uh, despite our best intentions, we don't live up to God's word. We suppress the truth of the skies and we fail to obey the truth of the scriptures. And so we don't just need revelation. We also need redemption. We don't just need God to make himself clearer. We also need him to save us from our sins. Uh, that's the hope that David looks forward to in verse 14. Notice how he speaks of God at the end. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God in Christ has become the redeemer of all who trust in him. And so he is both a climax of revelation and redemption. And so if you haven't done it yet, why not put an end to 2023 and welcome in 2024 by trusting in Christ, repenting of sin, who is both Christ our revelation and our redemption. Because uh, all who do that can be confident that God will present them blameless and innocent of great transgression, just as David prays. If that's what you want to do, uh, why don't you do it today and then pick up a Bible and then join us, the rest of us, in 2024 and uh, devote yourself to digging into the Scriptures, both a treasure and a beehive of honey. Let's pray together. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of David's mouth and the meditation of his heart. We thank you that they were pleasing in your sight. And so though he gave them to you, you've now given them back to us in the form of a psalm in our Bibles, which we can now pick up and offer back to you. 
Lord, we, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark. Instead, you've shown us who you are in the skies, in the scriptures, and ultimately, supremely in your Son, the one who was sent uh, to die in our place and for our sins. Lord, in 2024, would you help us to treasure the scriptures that we might treasure you and your Son? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.